Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Again, it's Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. If you would please stand. And I will read. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those who that followed shouted hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest heaven when jesus entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred and asked who is this the crowds answered this is jesus the prophet from nazareth in galilee this is the word of the lord you can be seated good morning I love this scene. This is such a great scene, this picture of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus. Um, I love it for a lot of reasons. I love the color of it, the activity of it, uh, the energy that's in this story. These are pictures that I found this week that in, in a small way kind of capture what I, in my imagination, what I imagine it would look like or what it did look like. And part of why I love this story so much, this Palm Sunday story, is how fascinating it is because there's so many layers of what is going on here and why people are there. And and in fact, one of the most intriguing things is the crowd itself. Uh, There's such a diversity of people there, of who is there, and also a diversity of why they've come there and why they are cheering Jesus on. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning and what that means for us. And I really think you could, uh, if you attempted to kind of categorize who was there welcoming Jesus and celebrating Jesus coming into Jerusalem that day, you can kind of filter it down into two groups. The first group being kind of the residents of Jerusalem, the people that live there. And these people have probably not seen Jesus at this point. Maybe they've heard of him and heard of what he's been doing in the northern part of the country. Um, But this is their first chance to see him. And they see the energy. They see everyone and how they are reacting to Jesus. And and Matthew tells us in the scripture that Lorraine just read, their reaction to it is, who is this? Who is this guy that is coming in? And why all of this energy? The second set of people there are really his his followers. And that could be a big group. We don't know the exact number. And some of these followers are people that maybe have followed him for one or two months, maybe six months, a year, two years, maybe even three years. 
But these followers who have followed him to Jerusalem have really, at times, the Gospels share with us these stories where these people often are so dedicated to following Jesus that they'll give up meals or give up a place, the security of having a place to stay just to be with Jesus, to witness what he's doing or to hear him teach. And amongst those groups of followers is, of course, the disciples, the 12 who Jesus is their rabbi, and they've given up everything, um, their, their home life, their jobs, all of their security to be dedicated to Jesus and their rabbi. And I just imagine the disciples, as they watched Jesus walking into Jerusalem, what a hurricane of emotion they must have had internally as they're watching Jesus go in, because here's their rabbi, again, the one they've dedicated their lives to, who is being celebrated in such a tremendous way. And people are laying palms down, they're laying their garments down in front of him, they're giving him a royal welcome as he comes in. They must have been, on one hand, very excited and encouraged by this, like, yes, this is who we are following and people are recognizing. But then on the other hand, just a few days prior, Jesus had told them that he was going to die very soon. So what a weird kind of hurricane of emotions going on inside the the disciples. But really what I want to talk about this morning is why this scene? Why Palm Sunday? Why did it even happen? What's the significance of it? And what does that mean for us today? But for that, we need to go into a little bit of context of the story and go back a little bit. Three years, in fact. Jesus, of course, was a resident of a small town in northern Israel called Nazareth. And around 30 years old, he struck out. Uh, for his ministry, and he spent three years traveling around the Galilee region of Israel, which is in the north, around the Sea of Galilee. And in that time, he traveled with his disciples, he taught, he challenged, he healed people, countless people, in miraculous ways. He raised some people from the dead. In all of this, he challenged people to live in a new reality, which was the re- the, this new kingdom of God. And as he did this, and as he traveled... And as he had his disciples with him and his followers, the crowds grew. Now, sometimes the crowds were huge with him. Sometimes they were smaller. But throughout the Gospels, there really is this upward climb. There's an increase of the crowds the whole way. And in some stories, it says that all of the region of Galilee was out to see him. That's a, that's a, a large amount of people. In that crowd were also the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the people that it was their job to uphold the religious rules of the day. And as they saw Jesus' crowds get bigger, and they saw that he was breaking all the rules, that he was breaking all the religious rules of what should be done in that day, as they saw this, Jesus became a threat, became a threat to them and their hold and their power, and they began to try to trap him and challenge Jesus. And every time they do, as you read in the Gospels, he brilliantly meets them where they're going in trying to trap him and shuts them down. But as he does this, What happens is the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day start to plot his death. They start to plot how they can bring him down for, in their eyes, breaking the rules. So as Jesus is walking, or not walking, but as he's riding into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, he's really going into a dangerous place. Jerusalem is dangerous for him. It not only is the political capital of Israel, but it's the religious one. It's where the Sanhedrin is located. It's the religious seat of power for the Jewish people. And so he's really walking into where the home of his enemies in a lot of ways and walking in 
to the main center of the place of the people who are plotting his death while he's out and traveling. Yet, even though he's walking into this dangerous place, Jesus is also getting a hero's welcome. And the reason for that is because the Jewish people had been waiting a long time for the Messiah to show up. In fact, centuries after centuries, God had promised them that a Messiah was coming from the line of King David that would rescue them, that would bring glory back to Israel, that would gather the Jews from all over, bring them back, and give, and re, um, give them power once again. So this is the scene that we have as Jesus is walking in, and that they believe that he will come, that he will restore them. And the, the context here is that for the 400 previous years, they had gone 400 years without a prophet, since the last prophet. And in that time, several powers had come in and conquered their land. One of them being Greece, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, had come in and occupied. But currently in this story, it's Rome. The greatest empire the world has ever seen had come in and had occupied the land of Israel at this time. And so as Jesus is walking in, there's this hope, this desperate hope, that this is the Messiah, and that this Messiah will deliver them from Rome. And we have a hint of that, we have evidence of that in the palm itself. The palm is not only a symbol of royalty, but it has deep historical significance for the Jewish people. And that goes back 200 years before Palm Sunday to the Maccabee Revolt. The Maccabee Revolt took place in the 2nd century B.C., and it was when the Greeks were in, uh, occupying the land. And they had come in and they had defiled the temple. They hadn't allowed the Jews to practice their religious customs. They had set up pagan idols that they required the Jews to worship. And several Jews had gone along with this, many, and they were called Hellenistic Jews. But several had also resisted this. One of them was named Maccabee. He was a, uh, a rural farmer priest. And he refused to worship the pagan idol that had been set up by the Greeks and with his refusal, he sparked a revolution. Now, he died shortly thereafter, but his sons, a year later, rode into Jerusalem with a, a big Jewish army. And this was after many battles. And they were able to defeat the Greeks and, in essence, kick them out. And then they were able to tear down the pagan idols. And also, they were able to re-cleanse the temple. And this is actually where the, the holiday of Hanukkah comes from. Because when they came back in and rededicated and re-cleansed the temple, there was only one day's worth of oil left to light the menorah, the candles in the temple. And, it, and there was only one day's worth of uncontaminated oil. But that one day's worth of oil miraculously lasted for eight days, which gives us the holiday of Hanukkah. So that's the cultural and historical context of these palms as they're laying them down and hoping that yet again, here, we are going to be rescued this is the Messiah, and he's going to save us from Rome. And we know that this is a false hope. This overthrow is not going to happen. And, he, and Jesus is going to disappoint them in this way. And this is where this scene gets really ironic to me, really strange, but also really fascinating. He's not the Messiah they thought he was. They're consumed with their own circumstances. And by the way, I don't blame them. They're pretty big circumstances to have an occupying power in your land. Um, and I would probably be amongst them, more than likely. 
But they are consumed with their own present reality. They're concerned with this Messiah and how this Messiah will fill what they want to be done and fulfill what they believe the Messiah needs to do for them. They don't quite grasp Jesus' purpose and mission in this story. Because Jesus, of course, as we know, has a much bigger purpose. His mission is much bigger than overthrowing Rome. He has come to set all things right. He has come to establish a new covenant and to bring a new reality. He has come to make it possible for us once again, for all of mankind, to be able to commune with God, to know God. And this new reality that he brought plays by a whole different set of rules. It runs counter to the rules of the world. And it infuses everything with this amazing thing called grace and this amazing love. And in the process, Jesus was then and is still redefining what power is. That in his kingdom, power stems from being a servant and from serving others, which is completely different and runs completely counter to what the world said then and, of course, to what the world says now. But I imagine this has to be so lonely for Jesus as he's coming in to, to hear this applause and to see the reaction of the people and to know what they wanted from him and for him to know that he wasn't going to do that, that he was going to disappoint them and that the city he was riding into was where he was going to die a horrific criminal's death in just a few days. The crowd is focused on the temporary, what's right in front of them. And again, I don't blame them. But they're focused on a smaller story, and in the process, they are missing out on this cosmic, enormous, transcendent story that is playing out right in front of them. God has come to them to make all things right once again. N.T. Wright, who's a pastor and a writer, he he wrote about this when he said, um, God has promised to come back to return his people in power and glory, to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The Jewish people always hoped that this would simply underwrite their national aspirations. He was, after all, their God. But the prophets, up to and including John the Baptist, had always warned that God's coming in power and in person would be entirely on his own terms, with his own purpose, and that his own people would be as much under judgment as anyone if their aspirations didn't coincide with God. This is a a transcendent moment in which God has come to earth, and not in the way that they expected him to, but in a much bigger way. And they are caught at a moment looking in the other direction. This is a Shakespearean tragedy of epic proportions but we need to be careful here as we dig uh, deeper into this not to uh, cast too harsh of a judgmental finger towards the jews because this is something that is not unique to them this is something that comes with being human we have a deeply ingrained just as they did we do today have a deeply ingrained self-focus we have a very hard time getting past ourselves getting past our stories And what happens when we do that is we try to fit God into our story, into our purposes. He becomes like an object or a tool that we can manipulate to fix our problems. And then he becomes the God that we feel we need instead of the God that he actually is. 
He becomes then a supporting character in the movie of our lives instead of us becoming a supporting character in his movie. By the way, his movie is a lot better. It's a lot better well-written. It's much more well-written. So some of you know um, Stephanie and I, my wife, we met here many a moon ago in the Oak Hills Youth Group in the building right over there. And um, we dated for about a year and a half, and then we broke up. We spent eight years apart before we ended up coming back together and getting married. And in that eight years, we did different things. Stephanie went to college up in Humboldt. I went down and did college down in San Diego. And we dated different people, although she dated people more seriously than I did, by the way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, she was almost engaged to this guy. Justin. Um, Yeah. But we had this weird eight-year period of, you know, we're best friends. Oh, we're, you know, I don't know. No, we're not best friends. You know, that weird, nebulous thing. And so I'm just giving you the context here to put this story in. It was in that weird place, okay? So just realize that as I tell you. We were on vacation. My family and I were coming back, and my friend had been house-sitting at our house. And when I got back home, went to the bathroom, and I noticed that something moved in the toilet. And that is not a good thing, obviously, or not a normal thing. And I grew up in the 80s, so anyone who else you know, did, you remember the video stores and they had the Ghoulies movie with the, the little monster in the toilet? So that's what I'm thinking right away when I see this. But I go up and I realize that there's fish in our toilet. There's six fish. Uh, my friend had played a prank on us, or played a prank on me, and said, ha-ha, I'm just going to leave fish in his toilet and see what he does with it. Well, I'm a... I'm a, an animal lover. I mean, I have a moral crisis when there's ants in my house, what to do with them. I don't know if you like me. But I went up to the, to the toilet and I said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with these fish? Um, and so I did what I still do to this day when I, when I hit a, a quandary, is I called Stephanie. And I said, hey, Steph, can you come on over? And so she came over and we literally spent the next three hours fishing, sorry, fishing these fish out of the toilet. But I, I forgot to mention, too, that I had tried to feed them with breadcrumbs, which doesn't make much sense, but I thought they need food, and what am I, I don't have fish food. So there's a lot of breadcrumbs in the toilet. It's just not a good scene, um, you know. So Stephanie and I, what we did is we got a little plastic cup, and we had a, another thing that we were going to transfer them to. The problem was every time we tried to, to save these fish, they would just right back up into the little the little hole in the back of the toilet up into the piping. And it was so frustrating for us uh, as we were doing this because we're thinking, fish, fish, if you only knew, if you only knew, if you stay here in your little pipe, then you will die. And, you know, it's not like what you see in the movies, in the Pixar movies. You're not going to get flushed, you know, to the ocean. You're going to die. Um... And thinking, but if you only would trust me in this and swim into my little cup, I could put you in a tank, and I will make this tank incredible. I mean, I'll put a dragon in there and a castle and all sorts of good stuff. But these fish just would not leave this pipe. They're so focused on their own thing. I don't blame them. The scary thing coming in, trying to get them to, to climb into it. When eventually we got them just out of pure luck. I mean, they just accidentally, you know, and then you just grab them. And and we did. We ended up getting all six out. And then we actually didn't put them in a tank. So this is where the metaphor totally breaks down. We gave them them to friends. 
But uh, you can obviously see the parallel here of just that God has something so much better for us. But when we get caught up in our own stories, in our own smaller stories, we miss out. And our smaller stories demand so much of our attention, just as it did for the fish that day, um, that we just simply miss out. And that's the feeling I think that Jesus must have had as he was entering into Jerusalem that day. In fact, Luke, uh, in his book, he gives us a picture of what Jesus was feeling as he came in. And he says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There's an intense irony in what's happening here because you have the crowd which is uh, focusing on their deeply ingrained self-focus and yet you have Jesus who's coming to sacrifice himself for the very people in front of him that are self-focused. And this shows just how, I believe, how amazing Jesus is, how amazing the Savior is. He is a weeping Messiah And he's weeping for this fickle crowd in front of him that are cheering him now. But in just a few days, as he dies a criminal's death on the cross, they will be nowhere to be found. What amazing depth of character of Jesus here in what he's doing. What maturity, what courage, what strength, what substance, what security he he is displaying here in who he is. And who God is. It's amazing that our Savior, knowing our selfishness, knowing our propensity to always focus on ourselves and our small stories, that that Savior still seeks us out. That he comes into our world, we don't come into his world. He penetrates our bubbles, we don't penetrate his. And when he comes into our world, he invites us to that big story. And we do not deserve it. But he invites us to a true shalom-filled life, the type of life that we all, deep in our soul, desire very badly. The crowd changes with Jesus. They cheer one moment for him being the Messiah. A few days later, they cheer for his crucifixion. But Jesus never changes. Jesus never wavers. And it's really incredible. Because what's happening outside of him is like a hurricane and a roller coaster all mixed into one with what the people are doing. And yet, he stays dedicated to the bigger mission. He always stays dedicated to what he came to do. And when he dies on the cross, a few days later, an earthquake happens and the altar is split. And that's what happens in the physical world. But in the spiritual world, everything is new. We once again can be with God. We're able to be with God and to live in his amazing kingdom. So this is our mission. This is our challenge this week in Holy Week, as this is the beginning of Holy Week, is to dwell on this Jesus and how amazing he is and what kind of character he displays 
as he rides on this donkey into, into Jerusalem. And this is not an easy thing to do. This is, this is no simple thing. Uh, it requires a lot of trust. It requires a, a lot of trust to follow God in his big story. And the disciples are a great example of this. Um, the disciples constantly, in their story with Jesus, have to give up their smaller stories in order to trust him. And it wasn't easy. And Stephanie and I made this uh, a few years ago, but this is what's about to be put on the screen. This is a, if the disciple's job were to be put into a want ad in the classified section of a newspaper, um, a description of what they were doing, uh, this is what it would sound like. We'll be constantly on the road, on on the road, with very little shelter and no place to call home, walking as primary mode of transportation, will not own many possessions, only what you can carry, will be dependent on others to meet needs, and will have no control of your schedule. We'll need to manage the demands of crowds and expectations of desperate people, physically exhausting, emotionally demanding, and spiritually invigorating. Sailing and fishing experience helpful, but not required. Interested, be ready at a moment's notice. Don't contact me, I'll contact you. But looking at this job description, this is a terrible job, right? No one in their right mind would take this job. And this runs counter to, uh, this is a difficult, horrible job with horrible conditions surrounding it. But imagine if the disciples had decided not to follow Jesus. And believe me, there were so many times when they were challenged by him. When he first called them on the Sea of Galilee, the first thing he did was take them into their home church, their home synagogue, and speak with authority and heal someone and immediately break the rules. That's not an easy thing to be taken into your home church where everyone knows you and all of a sudden you're attached to this guy who's doing these crazy and different and new things. And he would take them and he would ask them to leave their families, to leave their father by the nets, to leave the family business. He would take them to a table and sit them down and ask them to break bread, a very intimate and close thing in that time, with their enemies, people that they hated. He was going to ask them to break bread with. That's a hard and difficult thing to do. And through it all, it is amazing that the disciples always stick with him. They trust him through all of this. And look at what they experienced because they did. An amazingly... Huge, transcendent story. They got to spend three years with the creator of the universe, which is a bit mind-blowing. They got to spend three years having the creator of the universe pour into them and teach them what it means to live in the right way and in the good way and how to experience true shalom. Imagine what they would have missed out on if when Jesus walked past them and asked them to drop everything if they just would have said, yeah, I don't think so. You know, that they obviously didn't know the job description, but as they experienced that job description, they could have walked away at any point, and yet they didn't. They trusted him, and he exposed them and brought them and taught them to an amazing life and an amazing story. Our amazing Savior calls us just like he called the disciples, in the same way. He, see, he seeks us in spite of ourselves, in spite of all the brokenness in, inside of us, in spite of our consistent self-focus. 
He is the king who truly loves us beyond all obstacles, and he cares for us in spectacular ways. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for a God who is focused on the big story, who is dedicated to that, and who invites us in amazingly into that story. This is what we should marinate in this week. In a moment, um, I'm going to pray, and after I'm done praying, um, we're going to have you come up and lay your palms down. Um, Everyone should have gotten a palm front when you came in. And as you come up, you can just lay them down on the front of the stage here on these papers. Um, But we're going to ask you to do a little bit of a different thing this morning and not go back to your seat after you lay your palms down, but to stay up here, and we're going to sing a song together in celebration of Palm Sunday. So if you're part of the first wave coming up with the palms, it would be good after you lay down your palms to just kind of spread wide so that the people behind you can come up. If you can't make it all the way up to the stage, that's fine. You can just lay it close to the, to the front. And if you don't have a palm frond, that's fine. We want you to come up as well and just join us up here at the front. But the reason we're doing this, the reason we're, we're doing this, which is a little out of the normal, maybe a little bit uncomfortable for us, but it's really symbolic for us this morning on two fronts. One, we want to lay down these palms as a symbol that our king has come. And we invite him into our world. And not just the, the big world outside these walls, but into the worlds of our, of our own lives as well. And that he is our king. He is our true Messiah. And by laying the palms down, we are saying, come, our king. And the second symbolism of this laying down of the palms is really what we've been doing um, all of Lent with these open hands that you see up here. Many of you have been here. Our posture has been one of an open palm where during Lent we've said, God, we give you, we offer up our attention, Lord, ourselves to you in this time, knowing that when we open our palms that you give us far more than we can ever give you. So as we lay down our palms, it's another symbol of us opening our palms and saying to God, God, we seek, we long to live in your big story. Give us the strength to get past ourselves to get past our smaller stories, to trust you, Lord, and to put all of ourselves into your good and true and great transcendent story. So if you pray with me. Father, we just, uh, we come, Lord, with humble hearts this morning, Lord, with incredibly thankful hearts, Lord, for who you are, for your almost unfathomable character, Lord. Lord, your, uh, the loneliness you must have felt as you entered Jerusalem that day. Lord, but we, are, we stand in awe of the amazing love that is behind all of that, Lord. The amazing love that you have for us, that you're willing to die for us, even in spite, Lord, of us missing you, of turning away from you. And Lord, we, uh, as we come forward here and lay down our palms, Lord, we do it as an act, Lord, of worship to you, that we bring you glory and honor. And Lord, by laying these palms down that we say to you, you are our king. And Lord, it is your story that we want to be a part of. Amen.